Hey everyone, hope you had a good night's sleep last night. There are tons of different sleep hacks out there, things like noise machines, maybe meditating before bed. I personally really like earplugs as well. But one thing that you could do right away to transform your sleep, bowl and branch sheets. Their signature sheets are the perfect way to start upgrading your sleep and they are designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. They are made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They really do feel buttery soft, yet they're breathable. So that means they are perfect even in these warm summer months. And they're also free from toxins, things like synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals, which I didn't even realize were things that were commonly found in other sheets. You can get a 30-night worry-free guarantee. That means you can wash, style, and sleep in these sheets for an entire month. And if you don't love them for any reason, you can send them right back with free returns on all orders in the United States. We love Bolin Brand sheets in my house. We went with the white color. And I know we've said this before, but they really do get softer with every wash. It feels so luxurious getting into bed. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Go to bowlandbranch.com slash monews for 15, that's one 5% off your first sheet set plus free shipping. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com slash monews for 15% off. Some exclusions apply, so see the site for details. All right, good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, August 9th. I'm Mo Shwanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts as we know them from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There is a lot to get to on this August 9th, so let's get started. The FBI raids former President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. We will tell you what that means. That comes as we're getting details on, let's say, the difficult relationship that President Trump had with military leaders during his time as Commander-in-Chief. I'll have more on that. We have a medical breakthrough, a potential breakthrough for those suffering from Lyme disease. We told you Monday about the new massive climate bill, tax bill. We are getting some details today on whether it's easier for you to buy an electric vehicle. Not so fast, some analysts say. And we remember two legends we lost this weekend, one singer, one author today on the podcast. Former President Trump said on Monday night, this was a remarkable statement when this came out Monday night, that the FBI has searched his Palm Beach, Florida home, even breaking open a safe, an account that, if accurate, is a dramatic escalation in the various investigations into the former president. This really is without precedent in U.S. history. A former president under FBI investigation, a raid on his home, people familiar with the investigation, two of them, tell the New York Times that it appears to be focused on material that former President Trump brought back with him to Mar-a-Lago, his private club and residence, after he left the White House. Those boxes contained many pages of classified documents. Again, these are sources to the New York Times that former President Trump brought classified documents back to Mar-a-Lago. We've been following this storyline for a bit here. Trump delayed returning 15 boxes of material requested by the National Archives for many months. He only finally returned them once there was threat of action being taken to retrieve them. Trump was known throughout his term to rip off official material, sometimes, in fact, according to sources, flush some things down the toilet and have things taken back to Mar-a-Lago. Some of these documents in previous White Houses would have gone to the archives. Trump did not share any details about what the FBI agents said they were searching him for. 
but he did depict himself as a victim here of shadowy forces seeking to damage him, specifically prevent him from running in 2024. He put out a lengthy statement, as I noted on Monday night. It includes, quote, after working and cooperating with the relevant government agencies, this unannounced raid on my home was not necessary or appropriate. Such an assault could only take place in a broken third world country. He continues in the statement. He says, quote, they even broke into my safe. What is the difference between this and Watergate, where operatives broke into the Democratic National Committee? Here in reverse, Democrats have broken into the home of the 45th President of the United States. There are several reports that former President Trump was not in Mar-a-Lago at the time of the FBI raid. This all comes as the Justice Department has been running its own investigation into 2020 and whether anything illegal was done in the months leading up to the election and the weeks after the election to keep him in office. They've been questioning senior aides. And this is concurrent to investigations into classified documents. Again, whether the former president took classified materials with him to places like Mar-a-Lago. What is remarkable here is that in order for this raid to happen, a judge had to believe there was good reason a crime was committed in order to authorize that raid. It was a court-ordered search of his property to look for possible evidence of a crime. You could say this is unprecedented. That's a term that we threw around a lot in the previous White House, but this in fact is unprecedented. A former president uh, having his home raided by the FBI to take such a step would require approval at the highest levels of the Justice Department that would possibly include U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Again, a raid like this is not authorized. A judge does not sign off on a raid like this unless there is significant evidence to warrant it, especially since it includes a former president. This is a fast-evolving situation, and we're going to continue to monitor this story for you. Meanwhile, the Biden White House announced on Monday that it was shipping its biggest yet direct delivery of weapons to Ukraine. It comes as the country prepares for a potentially decisive counteroffensive in the South and East against Russia. The U.S. is sending $1 billion in rockets, ammunition, and other material to Ukraine. That now brings the total amount of U.S. aid to nearly $10 billion in terms of military aid. The Russian invasion started nearly six months ago. Actually, it'll hit the six-month mark on August 24th in just about two weeks. The new U.S. arms shipment would further strengthen Ukraine as it mounts this counteroffensive. Russia is effectively stagnant now in the South and East. They've taken about 20 to 25 percent of the country. Ukraine has been prepping with its new Western weapons, a major counteroffensive as Russia appears bogged down. This could help Kyiv and the Ukrainian authorities really shape the course of the next step of the war. They aim to push Russian troops back out of Kherson and other southern territory near the Dnipro River. Russia in recent days was moving troops and equipment in the direction of the southern port cities to stave off this counteroffensive. So this is another uh, key amount of injection of aid by the U.S. military aid to help the Ukrainians as we now hit the six-month mark of the war. Meanwhile, we continue to watch military drills out in East Asia. China announced a new round of drills around Taiwan on Monday, and it's getting some concern from President Biden. China has actually also been conducting drills to the east, effectively showing Taiwan they can surround them. They were scheduled to end, but now China is continuing them. Their Eastern Theater Command says it's conducting joint drills focused on anti-submarine and sea assault operations. That confirms fears by some that Beijing is going to keep pressure on Taiwan's defenses and continue to practice for an eventual invasion of the island. China views Taiwan as part of their country. While they haven't had territorial control of Taiwan for nearly 70 years, a little more than 70 years, China views that eventually they will take back Taiwan. This all started, at least this most recent round, with Nancy Pelosi's visit. The Speaker of the House visited Taiwan last week. It was highly controversial. China warned Pelosi, warned America that there would be ramifications for the visit. Pelosi, for her part, said she wanted to show support for a democracy in Taiwan. 
The U.S. has straddled the line in the relationship between China and Taiwan for a while. And by while, I mean nearly 40 years now. Biden says that China needs to stop these drills, but he says he isn't concerned yet about an invasion. Either way, the Pelosi visit has given China an excuse here to practice an invasion of Taiwan and has the entire region on edge. Back here at home, we had some trial news, some courtroom news out of Georgia in the killing of Ahmed Arbery. The father and son convicted of murdering Arbery were both given an additional sentence of life in prison on Monday on federal hate crime charges. Their neighbor was sentenced to 35 years in prison. The father and son, who are Gregory and Travis McMichael, were already sentenced to life in prison in their initial state trial. This was a secondary trial at the federal level on hate crime charges, so they've been given an additional life sentence. Their neighbor, by the way, William Bryan, was given 35 years. The McMichaels and Bryan, who are all white, were found guilty back in February in the killing of Arbery. He's the black man who was running in their neighborhood when the defendants confronted him and killed him in February 2020. Brian, the neighbor, recorded the murder of Arbery on his cell phone. The defense attorneys, by the way, asked that the men serve their time in federal prison. They fear that they will not be safe in the state system in Georgia, which is known for violence, saying they've received hundreds of threats and will probably be killed in state custody. Nevertheless, the judge ruled that they will serve their time out in the state prison system and not the federal system. We told you Monday about the major piece of legislation the Senate passed over the weekend, $700 billion plus in climate, taxes, health care. That heads to the House later this week. But we are starting to read through those hundreds of pages and the climate provisions, specifically when it comes to electric vehicles, and to what extent they're going to benefit Americans who are looking to buy an electric vehicle in the coming years. The auto industry is happy so far. They're getting billions of dollars to help build electric vehicles and battery factories, billions to retool factories and build new ones. The bill also aims to help some of the traditional automakers, startup suppliers grow their facilities, roll out dozens of new models in the coming years. The question right now is the subsidy and whether the major tax subsidy will actually help average Americans buy electric vehicles. Notably, the legislation adds new rules that determine which electric models and which consumers qualify for a $7,500 tax subsidy to buy an electric vehicle. Now, this $7,500 subsidy has been in place since back in 2009, but auto industry lobbyists say that most electric vehicle purchases will not qualify under the way the, the new law is written. Essentially, it eliminates the subsidy for any vehicle that gets any battery raw materials and components from China. That's according to the language in the bill and the interpretation. Right now, of the 72 models that qualify for that $7,500 credit today, 70% become ineligible as soon as these measures take effect, and none will qualify for full credit once additional battery sourcing requirements kick in. So they're trying to protect American industry, trying to prevent China from continuing to dominate the industry, but it turns out in so doing, the credit doesn't become that available to most Americans. Several car manufacturers and suppliers have announced plans to build battery factories, but few have begun producing. This is going to be years away. The bottlenecks are going to take years to unclog. And so it's unclear whether the subsidy is really going to help folks. And by the way, at the same time, with so much demand for electric vehicles, long wait lists right now, I mean, people are already lining up. Car makers have little reason to target budget-minded buyers. And this is a concern. How are you going to make electric vehicles affordable for the average American. So far, Toyota and Honda are not selling significant numbers of all electric models here in the US. And there is a credit in the act for $4,000 for used cars, but apparently the $4,000 tax credit for used electric vehicles only applies for those that cost 25,000 or less, which is pretty rare these days. 
even for used electric vehicles. So again, they were trying to benefit US manufacturers, but it does mean that all of us need to read that fine print if you're interested in an electric vehicle to see if you actually qualify for any of those tax credits should you go out and buy one of those cars in the coming months and years. Let's head back to a story about former President Trump for a second, because Monday we got some new details from the latest book written about his administration. This comes to us, uh, the new excerpt from the book, The Divider, Trump in the White House. This is a book by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, two top-notch journalists. They're actually a husband-wife reporting team. They both have incredible sources of the Pentagon, and they delve into pretty remarkable details in the relationship, the pretty tough relationship that the former commander-in-chief Trump had with his top military generals and officials. The excerpts out Monday depict Trump as deeply frustrated by his top military, who he saw as insufficiently loyal or obedient to him. A couple key anecdotes that have gone viral. Uh, story number one, Trump apparently wanted, and this is a conversation he had with his former chief of staff, John Kelly, who was a top general. He wanted his national security team to be loyal to him, saying he wanted them to be like German soldiers who were loyal to Adolf Hitler. According to the exchange, Trump asked his chief of staff, John Kelly, quote, why can't you be like the German generals? Kelly then asked Trump, which German generals are you talking about, Mr. President? Trump apparently responded, the German generals during World War II. Kelly then reminded the former president, you do know they tried to kill Hitler three times and almost pulled it off. Trump responded, no, 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 they were totally loyal to him. So that exchange has gotten a lot of circulation online. There was another pretty remarkable piece of information in the book. That includes General Mark Milley, who Trump selected to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as his top military official. They published his drafted resignation letter, which apparently he wrote up after the National Guard violently forced Black Lives Matter protests out of Lafayette Square. You might remember this. This was the height of Black Lives Matter. There was this big photo up where Trump, uh, his top general, Milley, several staff walked through Lafayette Park after clearing it with tear gas so they could have a photo op of President Trump holding a Bible in front of a church. It was back in June of 2020. Milley apparently was so embarrassed by this that he drafted several letters of resignation to the president on why he was stepping down. One of his letters said that the former president was doing, quote, irreparable harm to this country. He went on that, quote, the events of the last couple of weeks have caused me to do deep soul searching, and I can no longer faithfully support and execute your orders as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Milley was concerned that Trump was using the military to scare people. By the way, he never ended up resigning because people around him were told, convinced him that he could do more from inside the administration and in that role versus outside if he resigned. There's a report out of Axios that came out Monday that I think you'll find highly interesting. This is in regards to law enforcement. Police departments across the country are facing severe staffing shortages as they struggle to recruit and retain officers, and many departments have been forced to find new ways to fill the gaps. These shortages have coincided with a spike in crime across the nation. You might have seen these numbers in major cities across the country. The rate of violent crimes in the U.S. in 2020 rose for the first time in years. The murder rate spiked 30%. That is the biggest increase since record-keeping began in 1960. This comes at a time where you're seeing police across the country leave the force, retire, and a number of departments have recruitment issues as they try to fill those gaps. When you talk to law enforcement, and I got some notes from a number of you who are in law enforcement or married to law enforcement, they blame pay cuts, long hours, uh, and the larger feeling that they feel like the enemy now when it comes to where they are in the communities, politicians, they feel demonized, and they defund the police movement to many of them has had an impact and they just feel they have to do something else.
So how do these shortages translate to what's happening? Axios has a few details. Uh, in Kansas City, the police department is now operating with 100 fewer non-law enforcement roles filled. That includes 911 dispatchers and 200 fewer officers. Among other effects, the result has meant longer wait times at 911 call centers. Over in LA, they are operating with more than 650 fewer officers than before the pandemic. They've been forced to downsize a few units, including those focused on human trafficking and narcotics. They've had to close their animal cruelty unit, and they've decreased their homelessness outreach teams by 80%. Up in Seattle, these staffing shortages have meant fewer detectives investigating sexual assaults. Now to some major health news, especially if you know someone or you are impacted by Lyme disease. Pfizer and a French biotech company have launched a clinical trial to test the only current vaccine candidate against Lyme disease. This is an announcement they made on Monday. The study could result in the first possible vaccine against Lyme disease in nearly two decades. Almost half a million people may get Lyme disease in the US each year. That's according to the CDC. There was a previous Lyme disease vaccine. It was marketed in the US about 20 plus years ago. It was discontinued back in 02. That's due to insufficient consumer demand. Not, um, not enough people wanted it. Nearly 36,000 confirmed and probable cases of Lyme disease were reported in the US alone in 2019. The CDC actually suspects the number is much higher. It could be 10 times that, uh, more than 400,000. And it is an increasing problem. Between 1997 and 2019, that's a 22-year span, the amount of confirmed Lyme disease cases has increased 54%, according to the CDC. Scientists blame increased travel as well as climate change that has made uh, certain areas of the country much more hospitable to ticks, which carry the disease. Diagnosing the disease can be difficult, but there is not a reliable test to detect it early on when antibiotics can be most effective. So this vaccine could be a pretty significant breakthrough for folks who are worried about it. And we end today by remembering a couple major losses on Monday, a singer and an author. Let's begin with Olivia Newton-John, the British-Australian pop star who dominated the late 70s and 80s. She has passed away after repeated treatments for cancer. That's according to a statement put out by her family on Monday. She was 73 years old. According to the statement, quote, she passed away peacefully at her ranch in Southern California, surrounded by family and friends. The statement is from her husband. He says, quote, we ask that everyone please respect the family's privacy during this very difficult time. You might remember Newton-John as the pop star as well as uh, her performance as Sandy in Greece. She also performed in the movie Xanadu. She had several number one hits, chart-topping albums, and four records that sold more than two million copies apiece. Remember her hit song, Let's Get Physical? This really is such a, a sad loss. I mean, I remember watching Greece repeatedly as I was growing up. Uh, it turns out that Newton-John had lived with a breast cancer diagnosis for about 30 years, since 1992. In 2017, she announced that her cancer had returned and spread. For years, she's been a prominent advocate for cancer research. She started a foundation in her name to support it and opened up a research and wellness center down in Melbourne, Australia, where she grew up. She is survived by a daughter, sister, brother, and husband. We're also mourning today the author, David McCullough, the historian, biographer. He died at the age of 89 on Sunday. He was known by millions for his books as a TV host and as a narrator with a rare gift for recreating those historical events and the characters from America's past. McCullough won Pulitzer Prizes for her two of his presidential biographies, Truman and John Adams. He spent time on these books, and I mean time. He spent seven years researching and writing the John Adams biography. He spent 10 years writing his book on Harry Truman. He received multiple awards. He also wrote a book on the Panama Canal, uh, a book about young Teddy Roosevelt a book about the Brooklyn Bridge. In a documentary about him on HBO, which I highly recommend, called Painting with Words, he said, quote, I think of writing as an art form, and I'm striving to write a book that might qualify as literature. I don't want it to just be readable. I don't want it just to be interesting. 
I want it to be something that moves the reader, moves me. He would effectively inhabit his characters like an actor preparing for a role. While writing The Great Bridge, he grew a beard like the engineer who built it. While he was working on Truman, he started to take brisk early morning walks just like Harry Truman did, trying to get in his head. In another interview, and I'll close with this, that he did with the New York Times back in 1992, he said he doesn't work on a book. He said, quote, I feel like I work in a book. It's like putting myself under a spell. And this spell is so real to me that if I have to leave my work for a few days, I have to work myself back into the spell when I come back. It's almost like hypnosis. We're sending our thoughts and prayers to the families of both Olivia Newton-John and David McCullough this week. They really made such a remarkable impact on culture. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. We'd love your feedback on how we're doing, on what we're covering. Email us, podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And of course, follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show. And please leave us a review in the App Store. It makes a difference and it will help us continue to grow this show. I will see everyone back here tomorrow. A special programming note, we'll have the morning edition as well as the beginning of my interview with former CIA director Michael Morell. We'll be putting out that second edition with Morell tomorrow afternoon.